want to look at this question today, which is suggested by our uh, Torah reading, the end of our Torah reading. How does God guide us when we haven't got a pillar of fire? We read in, in our Torah reading that uh, the people would follow the pillar of fire whenever it moved and they would stop whenever it stopped. But what about us? How does God guide us when we haven't got a pillar of fire? I'd like you to think of three foundational principles. First of all, God does seek to guide his people. Secondly, God does not want us chronically indecisive, second-guessing ourselves or anxious. So if you're looking for the guidance of God, but you're making yourself all hot and bothered over it and worrying about it, forget that. That's not what God is up to. He, he, he knows how to get things through to us. Uh, he's the great communicator. And when God wants you to know something, he will make it known to you. So don't work yourself up into a tizzy. He does not want us to be chronically indecisive where we say, I just don't know what God wants me to do. No, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want us second-guessing ourselves. Uh, when we say, boy, I made a decision. Now I'm, sure it's right. I'm not sure it's right. Again, he doesn't want us to be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. That's what God's will is. But most importantly, he wants us to desire and to seek his will in all things. He wants to know that he has our hearts and that we're concerned in our lives to make decisions that please him. Now, at the end of today's Torah reading, we read briefly about how when the pillar of fire moved on, the people would move and they would stay still when it stopped. But in the book of Numbers in chapter 9, there's a more elaborate uh, discussion of that phenomenon. And I think it's fascinating. I, as, as we read it, notice the extreme redundancy. In six verses, God will say no less than eight times uh, that they're to stop and seven times they're to go. It's very redundant. And there's a purpose for that. So let's just look at the text. This is from a parallel passage to our Torah passage found in the book of Numbers. On the day the tabernacle was put up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, that is the tent of meeting or the tent of testimony. And in the evening over the tabernacle was what appeared to be fire, which remained until morning. So the cloud always covered it and looked like fire at night. Whenever, now watch this, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tent, from above the tent, the people of Israel continued their travels, and they camped wherever the cloud stopped. At the order of Adonai, the people of Israel traveled, and at the order of Adonai, they camped. And as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they stayed in camp. Okay, we get the message, but the Torah is not finished. It goes on. Even when the cloud remained on the tabernacle for a long time, the people of Israel did what Adonai had charged them to do and did not travel. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, according to Adonai's order. 
they remained in camp. And according to Adonai's order, they traveled. Are you done yet? No, it's, the Torah is not done yet. Sometimes the cloud was there only from evening until morning, so that when the cloud was taken up in the morning, they traveled. Or even if it continued up both day and night, when the cloud was up, they traveled. Still not done. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained over the tabernacle, staying on it, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not travel. But as soon as it was taken up, they traveled. At Adonai's order, they camped. And at Adonai's order, they traveled. They did what Adonai had charged them to do through Moshe. Very rep repetitious and redundant, and it's making a point. It's that God wants us to pay attention and to seek to follow him. So let's define divine guidance. Here's our working definition. Divine guidance is the means that God uses to cause us to know what he wants, to be where he wants, and to do what he wants to advance his purposes for ourselves and for others. I'll say it again. Divine guidance is whatever means God uses to cause us to know what he wants, to be where he wants, and to do what he wants, to know, to be, to do. It's easy to remember, to know, to be, to do. To know where he wants, what he wants, to be where he wants, and to do what he wants, to advance his purposes for ourselves and for others. And today I want to give you a survey of a multitude of ways in scripture that God guides. <clears throat> Sometime we ought to do a workshop on this so there could be a lot of discussion. But right now, just here's your survey. What means does God use? Well, first of all, let's never forget that scripture is the foundation. Shaul, Paul, reminds us that all scripture is God-breathed and is viable for teaching the truth, for convicting of sin, for correcting faults, and training in right living, that anyone who belongs to God may be fully equipped for every good work. Fully equipped for every good work. So the foundation of our guidance is always scripture. And in Isaiah, Isaiah is talking to his people when they were consulting kinds of occultic means, all kinds of other means to try to find the will of God. And he says, no, 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 no. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law, the Torah, and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So let's not forget, scripture is foundational. Dallas Willard, uh, who died in the last couple of years, a great philosopher at USC, and a tremendous man of God, in one of his books says this, if we are really to understand the Bible record, we must uh, uh, enter into our study of it on the assumption that the experiences recorded there are basically of the same type as ours would have been if we had been there. In other words, these are not stories about exceptional people in exceptional times. If we had been there, we also 
would have experienced these things. Unless this comes home to us, the things that happen to the people in the Bible will remain unreal to us. We will not genuinely be able to believe the Bible or find its contents to be real because we'll have no experiential substance for us. In other words, if when I read the Bible, if when you read the Bible, we're saying, well, that was Paul, but I'm not Paul. Oh, that was, uh, that was Peter, but I'm not Peter. Oh, that was Miriam, but I'm not Miriam. Uh, oh, that was Abraham, but I'm not Abraham. Do you, you make the book to be an irrelevant book to you. It's just a book of Aquarian, of antiquarian interest. So in addition to the Bible being the foundation, here's a couple of other ways to think about it. It's also a case book. It's, uh, scripture illustrates how God has worked and how he will work in the lives of people, including ourselves. It's a, the Bible gives us examples of how God works with people. It's meant to be for us uh, a basis on which we make judgments. This is how God does it. This is how God guides people. It's also a tether. The Bible sets limits for what we can claim to be God's guidance. If you get some kind of guidance that has nothing to do with what the Bible would say, or God forbid contradicts what the Bible would say, then I don't care if it comes with angels and a 50-piece orchestra. It's not from God. The Bible sets limits on what we can claim as God's guidance. Here's some lessons. If you read the first couple of chapters of Luke, you find about nine different ways that God provides guidance, making people to know what he wants, to be where he wants, and to do what he wants. We find that piled up in Luke, and that's where I'm going to take you right now. One of those ways is written accounts. Luke writes this, Concerning the matters that have taken place among us, many people have undertaken to draw up accounts based on what was handed down to us through those who from the start were eyewitnesses and proclaimers of the message. Therefore, Your Excellency, since I have carefully investigated all these things from the beginning, it seemed good to me that I too should write you an accurate and orderly narrative so that you might know how well-founded are the things about which you have been taught. So one of the ways in which God speaks to us is written accounts. Of course, that's the scripture, but also sometimes in reading other books, uh, God will speak to you. There'll be something that, that you really feel like he's got your name written on it. Uh, something that's just the right thing at the right time. So God does speak to us through written accounts, especially through his word. Secondly, God speaks to us through rational consideration. You don't need to have a holy liver shiver. You don't have to have an angel with trumpets. As Luke says here, he says, it seemed good to me that I too should write you an accurate and orderly narrative so that you might know how well-founded are the things about which you've been taught. It seemed good to him. Sometimes when God guides you, something all of a sudden becomes, becomes just the right thing to do. It seems good to you. Is that ungodly guidance? No, it's not. You might need to check it out with some of the wise counselors, certainly check it against the scripture. But one of the ways that God guides you is why he helps you to reach a rational decision, just as he did with Luke. 
I saw this was happening. I saw this was happening. And it seemed good to me that I ought to do this. That's why we have the book of Luke, because it seemed good to Luke. Another way God guides us is through scripture and custom or tradition. <clears throat> Notice this. How did God get Zechariah to the place where he was going to hear from the angel that John the Baptist was going to be born? How did God get him to that point where he was going to meet him? One time when Zechariah was fulfilling his duties as Kohen during his divisions period of service before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom among the Kohanim, to enter the temple and burn incense. This happened only once in a, in, a, in a person's lifetime. He was chosen by lot. He was chosen through a custom, through a traditional custom, that he should be the one who goes in and burns incense. All the people were outside praying at the time of the incense burning, when there appeared to him an angel of Adonai standing to the right of the incense altar. The reason that Zechariah was where God wanted him to be and where he learned what God wanted him to know was custom, tradition. Custom and tradition are not bad. They're not ungodly. They're not second rate. They're a means that God uses to have people knowing what he, he wants them to know, being where he wants them to be, doing what he wants them to do. Uh, let's, let's move on. Another way is supernatural visitation. Zacharias said to the angel, how can I be sure of this? For I'm an old man. <clears throat> My wife too is well on in years. And the angel said, I'm Gabriel. The angel answered him, and I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to give you the good news. God sometimes speaks through supernatural visitation. Uh, there's a wonderful man named Fred Wertheim, who is now with the Lord. Fred Wertheim was the gentlest of souls. He was a German Jewish boy from a place in Germany, a village of 2,000 people where he was the only Jewish boy. When the Nazis came to power, uh, he, he would go to school, and the first thing that happened in school every day is that they would be reading from Der Sturmer, which was the Nazi propaganda newspaper. And when this poor Jewish boy, who was the son of the baker in the village, Fred Wertheim, when he got to school, he got beat up every day. It must have been terrible. Eventually, he and his family managed to get out of Germany, amazingly, came to the United States. He went back to Germany when he was 18 as a soldier in the army and he was captured as a prisoner of war. It was extremely traumatic for him because he could understand everything the Nazis were saying that they had decided to kill all the prisoners. He was deeply, deeply affected by that. Many years later, his son Steve uh, came out to California. He was working in a bank and through one thing and another, he got involved in a Bible study led by our friend Brooke Goldstein, and Steve came to faith in Yeshua. Well, when Fred Wertheim, who was a mailman back in New York, when he heard about it, uh, he, uh, he said, 
who wants to take mail from a mailman who's always crying? He was devastated, absolutely devastated. But um, one night in the midst of all this, uh, when he was in his bedroom, he had a vision of Yeshua. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it was a very um, technicolor, you know, all bells and whistles kind of vision. But Yeshua appeared to him in his bedroom. Well, that helped to move Fred Wertheim to Yeshua faith. Not only he, but his wife, I think her parents, and certainly his uh, Steve Wertheim's brother, all came to Yeshua faith. So does God sometimes speak through supernatural visitation? Yes, he does. I could tell you another story or two, but I won't. Just know that it happens. As a matter of fact, in the Muslim world, uh, we'll get to that in a moment. We'll get to that in a moment. Another means is miraculous signs and wonders. The angel says to Zechariah, now, because you didn't believe what I said, which will be fulfilled when the time comes, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day these things come to place. So Zechariah was mute for at least nine months. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were surprised at his taking so long in the temple. But when he came out, unable to talk to them, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and speechless, he communicated them with signs. They realized that the reason he was mute is he had experienced something, he had had an encounter with a divine being in, 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 in the temple. So God can speak to us through miraculous signs and wonders. Um, moving on, God also causes us to know and to go and to do through secular events. God can use secular events to have us to know what he wants, to be where he wants, and to do what he wants. We read in Luke again, around this time, Emperor Augustus issued an order for the census to be taken throughout the empire. This is pagan Emperor Augustus ordering a census to be taken throughout the empire. This registration, the first of its kind, took place when Quirinius was governor in Syria. Everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. So Yosef, because he was descendant of David, went up from the town of Nazareth in the Galilee to the town uh, of David called Bethlehem in Yehuda to be registered with Miriam to whom he was engaged and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her first child, a son. Question, how did God get Yosef and Miriam to Bethlehem so that the Messiah could be born in Bethlehem. He did it through a, a pagan secular events. So God can use even this to get us to know what he wants, to go where he wants, or to be where he wants, and to do what he wants. More. Sometimes God guides us through impressions. There was in Jerusalem a man named Shimon. This man was a tzaddik, a holy man. He was devout. He waited eagerly for God to comfort Israel, and the Ruach HaKodesh was upon him. 
it had been revealed to him by the Ruach HaKodesh that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah of Adonai. Now, we don't know how it was revealed to him, but it was. He probably didn't hear a voice, but he knew because he knew because he knew that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah of Adonai. Here again, verse 27, prompted by the Spirit. He got a holy nudge from God. These can be subtle, but they're real. Prompted by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him what the Torah required, Shimon took him up in his arms, made a bracha to God. So this is another way that God guides us through holy impressions. But I want to give a word of warning. Some of us, unfortunately, are so desperate to be special that we want to have all these bells and whistles so that we can be really special. This is not about you being special. This is ordinary ways that God guides us. But don't covet these ways because you need to be special. You're already special to God, and, but don't push it. Okay, so God can guide us through impressions. He can also guide us through prophetic words. Shimon took the infant Yeshua in his arms. He made a bracha to God. Now, Shimon is a holy and righteous man. He's not a prophet, but he's under the influence of the Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit had promised him that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. The Holy Spirit nudges him in some way to go into the temple, and there he sees a child with his parents, and he knows because he knows because he knows this is the one. He took him in his arms, he made a brachat to God, and he said, Now, Adonai, according to your word, your servant is as peace as you let him go. For I have seen with my own eyes your Yeshua, your salvation which were prepared in the presence of all peoples, a life that will bring revelation to the Goyim and glory to your people, Israel. Yeshua's father and mother were marveling at the things Shimon was saying about him. Shimon blessed them, and he said to the child's mother, Miriam, look at this. The child will cause many in Israel to fall and to rise. He will become a sign whom people will speak against. Moreover, a sword will pierce your own heart too. All this will happen in order to reveal many people's inmost thoughts. That's a prophetic word to Miriam. The Holy Spirit comes on this man, fills this man, and he turns to Miriam and he tells her this about her child. In another passage, it says Miriam hid these things in her heart. She didn't know exactly how it was going to play out, but she had gotten a prophetic word. And uh, God can do that. Sometimes when someone is speaking to you, God is speaking to you, piggybacking their words. They may not even know that the Holy Spirit is using them, uh, uh, but he is. So. In Matthew, talking about the same net, network of, of uh, events, an angel of Adonai appeared to Yosef in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt 
and stay there until I tell you to leave. For Herod is going to look for the child in order to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and left during night for Egypt, where he stayed until Herod died. Sometimes God, draw, God guides through dreams. I've been having a lot of dreams lately, but I don't think that they're God dreams. There was once in my life when four nights in a row, I had dreams about my life and my service to God. Four nights in a row, each night the dream was about something about that. Each night when I woke up, I remembered the dream. And when I thought about it, I realized what it was about. Four nights in a row. That's, now that's, um, let's see, how, how uh, that's a, that's a, four nights in a row in the midst of about 58 years as a believer. So it's not like this happens every week. But it does happen. In the Muslim world, about three quarters of the Muslims who are coming to faith in Yeshua are doing so through dreams. Because in the Muslim world, this is looked upon as a very, very special way that, that God communicates with people. They have great respect for dreams. And in the Muslim world, about three quarters of those who are coming are either through dreams or visions. So that's another way God guides more. Here's two more means. Double confirmation. What is double confirmation? When God seems to have given you guidance on a matter, and then someone unaware of those circumstances communicates something which is a conspicuous confirmation of the earlier guidance. There'll be a time when you feel like God is leading you to, to do something that's maybe even bold. And then somebody out of the blue, who doesn't know anything about what you've been what you've been thinking about, anything about what you're halfway deciding, they come to you and out of the blue, they say, you know, I don't know why, but I gotta tell you this. I'll tell you one story that happened in the life of Avatsyun. When I was at Fuller Seminary, one of the people was graduating and he was going back to Scotland. And he had a uh, uh, he had a little get-together at his house. I've told this story before. He had a little get-together at his house as a send-off before he left to continue his studies in Scotland. And before, uh, and before the thing was over, a number of us were sitting in a kind of a window seat, and he said, I want to pray for you before I go, or before you go. And he started praying for us, and he said, I think, he said to me, he said, that the Lord said, I have put a spirit of excellence in you. Well, that's nice. But hey, you know, whoa. About two or three weeks later, uh, maybe one week, no more than two or three weeks, one of the holy people in our congregation, Del Leftwich, came up to me. And she said to me, Stuart, says, I don't, this, not, this doesn't usually happen. She said, but the Lord gave me something to say to you. And she, and she, had, she said, and he gave me the, the exact words. And she had it written on a scrap of paper in her hand. And she opened up the scrap of paper and it said, I've put a spirit of excellence in you. Now that's hot stuff, but that's double confirmation. Uh, God does that. 
now you especially get double confirmation if what you're being asked to do demands a lot of faith. So that's a standard way God acts. He did that with Gideon. Gideon asked for the fleece, and Gideon was not sure if this is really the guidance of God, so he asked God for double confirmation. And bam, there it was. Now, in his case, it all came in the same context. But often, God will bring that double confirmation through an outsider. Another thing is divine contact. A divine contact, how does God get you to know what he wants you to know, to be where he wants you to be, and to do what he wants you to do? He may use a divine contact. This is when just the right person pops up at just the right time so as to confirm or advance what you have been considering as God's will in a matter. Now, don't contrive this. You can't kind of, of, kind of give people hints. This is like double confirmation. When out of the blue, just the right person pops up at just the right time, so as to confirm or advance what you have been considering as God's will in a matter. There was a time in the history of the Union Mess of uh, of uh, Messianic Jewish uh, Theological Institute, which I helped to found. There was a time when we didn't have money; we had no money. We had, most of the time we didn't have money, but we didn't have postage. And uh, out of the blue, one of us was contacted by someone whom he had not seen in four and a half years and only met once or twice. And this person was rather wealthy and the Lord had cued this person on something of the nature of the difficulty. And within a week and a half, MJTI had a million and a half dollars. That was through a divine contact, just the right person popping up at just the right time. So as you confirm or advance what you have been considering as God's will in a matter. Okay. Here's a final word of wisdom. Um, John Wesley was one of the wisest men I know of in history. He's amazingly had a tremendous sense of reality. He was extraordinary and extremely productive, extremely productive. And uh, from his theologizing, they've extracted what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I've talked to you about this before, but it's good, solid advice. And that reminds me to tell you that another way God guides you is through wise counselors. It's not a solo act. You need wise counselors, not just people who will tell you what you want to hear, but people who care enough about you to tell you what you don't want to hear. You need wise counselors. Here's some wise counsel from John Wesley, with which we close. First of all, you notice this, uh, I guess it's mauve uh, circle, uh, scripture. Scripture encompasses it all. Scripture is the foundation. Everything must happen within the context of scripture. But then there are three other things that work in synergy, in, in productive, energetic interaction with scripture. Reason. Um, reason. Uh, you know, if I told my wife, I believe God has told me he wants me to go and become a ballet dancer. 
uh, she has every reason to have me locked up. So you need to have reason as part as one of the factors that interacts. Secondly, tradition. What, what is the wisdom of God's people down through the ages? How does that contribute to it? We should not be so egotistical that we think that, that God speaks to us in a special way, but as to what he said to people in the past, we can't be bothered with that. That's stupid. We need the wisdom of tradition. And finally, experience. What has your experience taught you? Uh, and by factoring reason, tradition, and your life experience and that of others within the context of scripture, you're liable to get a pretty good bead on the guidance of God. I'm aware that this study has been long and detailed. And those of you who really care about it have been scribbling madly. But I wanted to give you a, a real panorama of some of the ways that God guides us when we don't have a pillar of fire. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, O oh God, be acceptable in your sight. May every holy seed bear fruit watered by your spirit. And may our hearts be truly prepared ground for whatever it is you wish to say to us at any time in our lives. We ask this in Messiah's name. Amen. Okay, I'll take.